Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for this week's episode of Abide in Liberty. This week, I was reminded of one of my favorite documents of all time, and I feel a little bit chagrined that it's taken me this long to bring it up on this podcast. And this is George Washington's farewell address. I was reminded of this kind of in passing, and so I decided to go back and give it a reread, and it shocked me because it had been a while since I'd read this just how closely George Washington had our day pegged over 200 years ago. And I think as you go through this with me, you'll realize yourself just how prophetic this farewell address is. Now, to give a little bit of historical context to his farewell address, this was something that he published and gave shortly before completing his second term as president. He had planned on retiring after the Revolutionary War and reluctantly came out of retirement to serve as this country's first president. He was extraordinarily popular. People of all walks of life and all different political leanings trusted him completely, and it gave everybody a sense of comfort and security in this new nation that had been set up in this new constitution, knowing that George Washington, the citizen general, the one who refused to allow his supporters to king him after the Revolutionary War, but instead kept the military authority subject to civilian rule, something that hardly anybody in history had ever accomplished. So he he was completely, in the eyes of the citizens of this country, he was completely trustworthy to take on the mantle as the first president of the United States. Well, he felt like after his second term that he had done his duty in establishing this new form of government, of giving enough constancy and continuity to the office of president that he could now allow it to transition to someone else, and that there was enough that had kind of at that point been established and settled that his role in the great saga and the great founding of this country was over. So he gave this farewell address, and as he did that, um, it's a very long address, and we don't have time on a short podcast like this to read the entire thing, but he left with some words of wisdom that he hoped future generations would give heed to. And for a long time, this country did just that. But in recent decades, we've, I suppose, in our own hubris of how much we have evolved and how much we have progressed, have looked at some of his his warnings and his predictions as naive, as outdated, But as we've ignored those admonitions and the counsel that he left us with, I think you'll see as we go through this, our country is not better off for it. The foresight that he had was truly remarkable. And had we, over the past several years and several decades, get paid heed to the wisdom that he imparted after a lifetime of service in establishing this country, we would be in a much better position than we are now. Now, A couple of other things that are important to keep in mind as he's getting ready to step down 
During the majority of his presidency, he was so widely respected that he was very rarely criticized. However, throughout the tenure of his presidency, the country started kind of um, dividing into two main camps. There was the Federalists, which were uh, headed by people like Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, and George Washington himself leaned towards the Federalist way of thinking, which was that it was important for the United States to have a strong and robust central executive government. They had all seen how hard it was to fight the Revolutionary War with a weak executive or no executive at all, and they thought it vitally important to the national security of this country for that strong central government to be robust and strong and healthy. On the other hand, the anti-federalists headed by people like uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison believed in keeping the government as small as humanly possible. And whereas Alexander Hamilton wanted to expand and establish a a strong central bank and kind of tried to push the boundaries of the Constitution to do so, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were very aggressive in their denunciation of those practices and accused um, Alexander Hamilton in particular and John Adams, especially after uh, George Washington stepped down as president, of trying to establish another aristocracy, of trying to set themselves up as kings, which of course wasn't a fair accusation. But this, as um, George Washington steps down, this party divide had started to really become firmly entrenched and was becoming very ugly very quickly. And so as we go through this uh, farewell address by our first president, George Washington, we'll see that the seeds for many of the debates that we have today in the political sphere were planted, and not only planted, but had taken fairly deep root as far back as um, the late 1700s as we were moving into our second president, John Adams. All right, so let's jump in, and I'm going to pull out a couple of highlights from this farewell address and talk about them in turn. For starters, in talking about the unity of our government and the importance of um, supporting the Constitution, he said, the unity of government, which constitutes you one people, is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence. The support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, and of that very liberty which you so highly prize. So unity in our support of the government system that we have is vital to that peace and prosperity. He goes on to say, but as it is easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in your minds the convictions of this truth. There'll be lots of people out there trying to divide you and trying to get you to question the founding of this country. As this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously, directed, it is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union. It's important, I'm going to repeat that again, it's important that we should properly estimate the immense value of our national union to our collective and individual happiness. 
that you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourselves to think and speak of it as of the palladium of your political safety and prosperity, watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discountenancing whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can in any event be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. He saw this constitution, this government, this nation that had been established as a great unifying force, as something that if we would hold to that and have that be our common language, our common mantra, our common set of marching orders, that we would be unstoppable, but that the enemies of freedom, the enemies that that hated what we were doing, would try to sow discord and get us to, to question the validity of the founding itself, to question the wisdom of the Constitution. And we see that today. And people today will shine light on the imperfection of the founders and use that as proof positive that what they did in this country that they built and the constitution that they wrote must be evil because it was penned by imperfect, flawed men. The 1619 Project is a great example of that. In this document and in this, and in this effort, this uh, curriculum, if you will, that is being taught in public schools across the country, we're taught that this country is evil because it began at Jamestown. Slavery was a part of it. Greed was a primary driving force at Jamestown. And so everything that came after that must have been poisoned as well. But they neglect to point out that, yes, Jamestown did have many of those problems, but then you also have the Plymouths where the driving force of those who came here was not to search for money, but to search for religious liberty and was not to come and conquer the native indigenous people of this continent, but to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, to bring the the happiness and peace that comes from living by its precepts to the people who lived here. It was noble. It was pure. It was laudable what they were trying to accomplish. But no, we're supposed to focus on the worst of the worst and, and then ignore all the good that happened, all in the name of trying to be fair. But really what it's doing is drawing into question and trying to get us to to begin to doubt the value of the principles enshrined in the Constitution simply because those who established it, again, may not have been 100% perfect. We see this as we tear down the statues of great leaders, people that we owe the happiness and the prosperity and the freedom that we have to, but we have to tear them down the flag itself has become controversial. You know, the Bible was the most quoted piece of literature among the founding fathers, but you can't even talk about that in schools. And it's interesting, even in Facebook, you know, it used to be when, so we run a small private school and, you know, you can pay for Facebook advertising and you can put in there, I'd like, you know, the people who, have these characteristics and these interests to be the ones that see this ad. So it used to be that I could put in and say, I'd love for people that love the Bible, that love God, that love prayer to see what we're trying to do, because those are the ones that are going to resonate with the values that we teach at school. But not that long ago, Facebook decided that you can't 
you can't target your audience based on those factors. You can no longer say, I like people who love the Bible to see my ads. You can, however, say that those who love the Bible of sports or the Bible of any other secular whatever, you can you can boost and you can try and target those audiences. But the Bible itself and prayer and God are simply not options anymore. We have generations now of Americans that have not been taught real American history and have not been taught about the Constitution. I have a catechism of the Constitution that 100 years ago, school children would recite. These were questions that the teacher would ask and the, the students would have to respond. And these were basic questions about the structure of our government, the principles that it was founded upon. That doesn't happen anymore and hasn't for a couple of generations now. George Washington saw that there would be those who despise the liberty that the Constitution of the United States brought, who would seek to undermine our faith in it, to seek to undermine our trust in the principles that they knew would bring prosperity. And instead, not only are we ignoring those, but we are actively trying to tear down the principles, the very things that bring the happiness that we once enjoyed. All right, let's go on to his next quote here. He says, for this, you have every inducement of sympathy and interest, citizens by birth or choice of a common country. That country has a right to concentrate your affections. If you are a part of this country, whether by birth or because you've come into here by your own choices through immigration, this country deserves our allegiance. He goes on, the name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. I'm proud to be an American should be a song that we all sing with gusto. One of my favorite stories from the civil rights movement, I mean, there are many of them, was from was about Eldridge Cleaver, who was a leader of the Black Panthers. And he sought to undermine, to do exactly what we were talking about, undermine the principles that this country was founded upon and establish, their goal was to establish a Marxist regime here. And he did something wrong, was on the run with the law and fled the country and spent several years visiting different communist countries, the ones who were employing the very things he wanted to instill and bring about in the United States. And eventually, it didn't take very long, he came back to the United States, surrendered himself into custody and was quoted as saying that he would rather be in jail in America than to live in those communist countries. We have every right to be proud of this country. And it is really only through ignorance of how bad it is elsewhere that people stand on the flag or burn the flag or refuse to sing the national anthem. If they only knew, if they only knew what the alternative was. Now, does that mean this country has been perfect? Of course not. Does this mean that there weren't things that needed desperately to be fixed in the civil rights movement? Of course not. But in the pursuit of a more perfect union, in the pursuit of happiness that we're all striving for, this country is special. God's hand is on it and has been on it from the beginning. And we should be proud to be Americans because there are people around this world who would kill to have what we have. George Washington goes on, with slight shades of difference, this is talking about the people back then, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. 
You have, in a common cause, fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and success. Now, this is something that unfortunately is no longer true. We don't have a common religion. We don't have common manners or habits or political principles. Those days are long gone, but they are absolutely vital to a free and prosperous nation. Now, when he talked about a common religion, this doesn't mean that everybody was Baptist or that everybody was Catholic or that everybody was Hindu. In fact, many of the Christian denominations were fiercely opposed with one another over the kind of marginal differences between each. Christians of that age, of different denominations, disagreed on many points, but they had the same set of values. Those who were Muslim, those who were of different religions, had the same basic Judeo-Christian values and believed in the same set of principles. And today, we are in desperate need of being united around a common set of values as well. That is still important. For example, a country that cannot agree between do we protect the unborn or it's okay to butcher those children up to up to and even after birth. When we can't agree on fundamentals like boys are boys and girls are girls, then then we we can't get back to the freedom and prosperity that we once enjoyed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We have to unify around righteous, time-tested principles. For decades, in schools and universities, large swaths of the population have been convinced that black is white and up is down. These foundational values that we once all agreed on have been attacked viciously and completely upended. And unfortunately, that has been a revolution in thinking and immorality that has been a long time coming. And so we have decades of work ahead of us to convince those that have been duped in this way, that have been duped into believing that you can find happiness in wickedness and that freedom is found in government control of everything. We're gonna t- it's going to take a long time to, to make that case and to convince those who no longer agree in those principles that they need to to come back to the light. They need to come back to the right side. It is possible and we can do it, but we've got to realize this isn't something that we get to go vote in one election and expect a complete course reversal. This is something that is going to take a concerted effort at every level and strata of society, in every school in this country, and over the course of many, many years to course correct. And I believe we're up to the task. Now, just kind of as a side note here, I want to point out that many others, many countries around the world have adopted and almost carbon copied our constitution, have tried to do exactly what we've done, but most of them fizzle out quickly in a matter of years or even just a couple decades. And what's different? What is it that has given this country its, its longevity? It's the virtuous foundation that it was built upon. That's what's given us its permanency. And abandoning that foundation will soon find this country following the same path of so many other countries who think 
that self-government is somehow possible without the ability of individual citizens to govern their own lives and their own passions. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today, and we haven't even made it halfway through George Washington's farewell address. So we'll pick this up again next week. Look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.